as Exodus chapter 2 opens, Pharaoh is, of course, on a mission to keep the Israelites under his control. And he's seeing things get out of control. He's afraid of the people of Israel. He's worried that there are so many of them that they are becoming a threat to his kingdom. And so first he put them under hard labor, backbreaking, manual labor, uh, the kind of um, terrible uh, work and hard labor that would surely uh, cost the health and probably even the lives of many of the Israelites. And he just kept increasing that workload, making it more and more hard and harsh. And yet God kept blessing them and multiplying the Israelites more and more, just as he had promised to do. He had promised Abraham that he would do that very thing. And here in the midst of this time of terrible suffering and oppression, the Lord used that time to bless his people and grow them. So when Pharaoh's plan didn't work, he increased the uh, pressure on them uh, more and more. And then he ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn male babies, as we saw last week. They refused, though. They didn't comply with this order. And when that didn't work, Pharaoh, and, uh, uh, Pharaoh chose to order everyone to kill these male Hebrew babies. So now it was not just the midwives that were told to do it. Uh, everyone in Egypt, uh, Egyptian and Israelite, were placed under this order to kill those male Hebrew babies by drowning them in the Nile. We see that at the end of chapter 1. This was the deadly time and place that Moses was born into. And this is not a fictional account. This is really what happened. It really shouldn't be that hard to believe. Uh, government ordered murder of children. Not that hard to believe at all, really. How different is that really from the society that we live in today with its uh, very low uh, value of, of human life and the life of infants in particular? It almost seems that... Uh, Abortion is something that just many people love and value more than life itself. It's sickening. It's really, uh, it's a spiritual matter. It's a demonic horror. And this is that spiritual warfare that is um, seen being worked out throughout history, that uh, conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Well, we see then God's response to this situation, this terrible suffering of his people. He came to their aid. And how? Well, it's beautiful how he did that. He did it through sending them a Savior. And not only a Savior, but one from these very condemned Hebrew baby boys. 
right in the middle of those terrible, terrible times, we're told here in verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife from uh, among the Levites, a Levite woman. And this young Hebrew couple were married. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And we're told when she saw the child, she saw that he was a fine child. The ESV says he was a fine child, and so she hid him for three months. Imagine having uh, a pregnancy and having a baby, knowing that if it's a male, there's a death sentence for your child. Not only that, but you're supposed to be the one to carry it out, or someone else will. But his mother saw that there was something very special about this child. Of course, every mother thinks there's something very special about their newborn, and every child is very special. They're made in the image of God, but there's more to it here. Uh, there really was something very unique about this little one. Verse in ESV says uh, he was a fine child. The word is often translated as beautiful. More literally, it means good. Good. It's the same Hebrew word used back in Genesis 1 when God created all things. And he looked upon all that he had made and he saw that it was good. So the same God who made all things, who created the world, and who is now uh, carrying out the redemption of this fallen world, the same God, and this baby Moses is raised up by him to be God's instrument, to move that good plan of redemption of the Lord forward. And he is going to grow up and be the deliverer of Israel. And so even though the parents didn't know all these things about their son, this mother and father knew there was something special about this little one, and they defied Pharaoh's decree, and instead of putting Moses to death, uh, they hid him. We're told they hid him for three months. Imagine trying to do that, to hide a newborn. I guess that might be a little challenging, right? A little bit of noise there you'd have to try to uh, prevent. Uh, imagine how they must have lived trying to hide this child trying to be very careful not to be discovered. And Hebrews eleven twenty three that we read a moment ago tells us this wasn't just a parental love. This was an act of faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, it's probably not to say that they didn't have some fear uh, of the king and his edict, but the point is they feared the Lord more than they feared man, more than they feared uh, this ungodly ruler, Pharaoh. And that's why they didn't hand 
the child over. They were living by faith. They were trusting in the Lord and seeking to do good. Really, this is the story of all godly parents and how we need to live and how we need to, by faith, uh, seek to raise our children in this dangerous, spiritually deadly world that we live in. The devil wants to destroy marriages, families, children. He certainly wants to destroy our children. And it is by faith that we seek to parent them in a godly way. It's by faith that we seek to uh, teach them about the Lord and his ways and his love and his grace in the gospel. It's by faith that we uh, need to seek to teach them to trust in the, the Savior for themselves, to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we trust the Lord to do that work in them. Uh, he has to grant the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit. It's an act of faith on our part as parents. The Lord is the one who has to give them the new birth and to make them his faithful followers in this dark, fallen world. We can't even do that as parents. We can do our part in seeking to be faithful, but we need to do it all by faith. We're trusting in the Lord to bring about his gracious redemption of our children. And we can't live by fear either and just seek to shelter our children from the world. I think many people emphasize that more than anything. And that may be in many ways a living by fear more than faith. That won't work either. You do seek to shelter your children. You seek to guard them uh, from so many things in this um, evil world, especially when they're young. But you cannot put your hope in sheltering them from the world. We need the Lord to do his work of grace in their lives. Uh, sheltering your children will not guarantee that everything will turn out okay with them. Now, only the Lord uh, can take care of them. Only he can save them. And we need to trust in him to draw them to himself and then to form his son in them. Christ-like character and to protect them always. Well, I imagine Moses' mother was uh, very vexed to have to let her son go so quickly. Three months, imagine that. I'm sure she wasn't ready to let that little one go, but she had no choice. And verse 3 tells us she couldn't hide him anymore at this point, and so she took for him uh, a, a basket and made a basket of bulrushes and bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. And notice here that technically she's doing what Pharaoh said to do. Into the river, she put her baby boy. But she couldn't bear to just throw him into the water to drown or to be eaten by crocodiles. And by faith, she made this little boat 
and a boat is what it was. She made it in hopes that he might be saved somehow. She knew not how. It was a basket, but the term for this little basket is the same for, uh, it's the same word used for Noah's ark. And that's what this was. It was a little ark. It was even constructed similarly with tar and pitch to seal it. Maybe she was thinking of Noah's ark when she made this uh, little boat. She put Moses into it and she set him afloat there in the river among the reeds. What a painful thing this must have been for her to let him go like this, not knowing what would happen. But she did this in faith. She turned her little one over to the Lord. She entrusted him to God's care. Now think about this. Imagine this tiny little baby floating in that tiny little boat on that great, massive river filled with all kinds of dangers. There were dangers on land there in Egypt for him. There were dangers in the water. It was a deadly situation. And to the human eye, he had no chance. He was so weak and small and helpless. And that's what we see in this scene. It seems that death uh, would be the only outcome for this little one. But what we don't see is the one who was superintending all these things. The one who is almighty. The one who is sovereign. The one who is carrying out his saving purposes, even through this terrible decree of Pharaoh and the step that these parents took to put him into this little ark on the river. The Lord, the Almighty, was protecting this tiny baby. The Lord was not only doing that, but he's also bringing about his purpose for this child to use him as uh, an important part of God's plan to save his people from this terrible Pharaoh and the bondage they were suffering. This is one of the things we need to remember about our God. Uh, and it's, it's being emphasized here that God uses weak, small, even foolish things to accomplish his great and awesome purposes his good saving purposes. That's how he uh, glorifies himself in the process. He doesn't use the mighty, the strong. He uses the weak. He uses uh, powerless, even sinful people who have all the odds stacked against them in seemingly impossible situations. He uses people who are um, foolish and and powerless in the world's eyes. And he uses them as part of his plan to accomplish his great grand purposes, his redeeming purposes. We see that over and over in the Bible. That's how the Lord loves to work. 
He works with the weak. He works with the small, the frail, the foolish. Think of uh, Gideon as an example of this. Gideon was nothing special. He was no great individual. And think of how God took that weak, trembling, frightened man who was hiding, and he used him. And that tiny, whittled-down army, you couldn't even really call it an army. It's a a band of... uh, band of brothers, using them to deliver Israel from over a hundred thousand Midianites. Often God chooses to work that way. Not only through weak people, but even in this case through a tiny baby. And he does that as well over and over again in scripture, uh, working his redeeming purposes through little babies like Moses here. How many times do we see that in the Bible? We've seen many of them already in uh, the book of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah waiting for God's promise to to bring about um, uh, their joy and the fulfillment of his promises to to bring a child uh, to them in their barrenness. Or think of other uh, instances of this. Samson is another instance like this. Samuel or John the Baptist. The Lord works in this way, using weak and lowly and and flawed human instruments, even little children, to work redemption. Paul talks about this way of God's working in 1 Corinthians. He tells us that God works that way through the gospel. The gospel message is like that. It's a message that appears to be uh, just the epitome of weakness. It is foolishness to the world. The preaching of the gospel seems uh, completely worthless to so many people, a joke. Nothing worth even uh, putting any stock in. You know, even so many churches in our day think that the preaching of the gospel isn't worth a hell of beans. Even churches that would claim um, to profess faith in Christ, the real emphasis of their message is not Christ. You know, so many churches, they put the emphasis on emotions or uh, a therapeutic message or they seek to create an environment that is um, emotionally charged with music and lights and smoke machines. And uh, this is really sort of the modern version of what the revivalists of the 1800s were doing and how they tried to really um, stir people emotionally, to, to move them, to make a decision, to make a choice, uh, to commit themselves to Christ. And they thought they had to employ all these techniques to get people to do something. But really, if you think about it, that is not at all the gospel. It's not about moving us to do something. It is about proclaiming what God has done for us already. And that is the gospel message. 
God says the preaching of Jesus Christ is where the power is at. The preaching of Christ is the power of God to save everyone who believes. And that's the message that we need to hear. We need to hear it again and again. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to comfort ourselves with the truth of what Christ has done for us and the forgiveness of our sins, that perfect righteousness that he's clothed us with. That's how God saves sinners, by the power of his spirit working together with his word, through his word, he transforms lives. He brings the dead to life through that good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for sinners, for the worst of sinners who trust in him. And the, the, that's the content of the gospel. And the content of the gospel is, is the supreme example of this principle of weakness, God's power at work through weakness. He could have appointed a, a great army of mighty angels to come down from heaven to save us. Now we're saved through a tiny baby born to a young virgin girl from a backwater town in Israel. Seemingly uh, nobodies, a nobody family. And this little baby grew up to be despised and rejected. Even his own family rejected him for a time. They thought he was insane. And then after his three-year ministry, he was rejected by his people as a whole and betrayed and abandoned, even by his closest companions. And he was condemned and put to death in the most painful and shameful way, being nailed to the cross. If that's not the picture of weakness and defeat and foolishness, I don't know what is. And yet God, God used that weakness to save the world. And his death, the death of his son, became the source of eternal life and eternal salvation for everyone who will trust in him. That is the foolish message that we have to proclaim. That is the message that saves sinners and that builds up the church of Jesus Christ in every age, nothing else. The power of God is in that foolishness and that weak message. It's not weak at all. By the power of God's Spirit, it is the power for salvation. You believe that message, that foolish, weak message. And are you holding fast to it? And so many opt for something that looks better, something that looks more appealing, more attractive. Substitutes for this. You know, so many churches, they substitute uh, a message of uh, good works instead of the message of God's grace in Christ. 
That's one of the, the main substitutes that you'll find in churches, a message of moralism, a message of uh, doing good. That's very appealing, but it is not the gospel, and there's no salvation in seeking to live that way. The message of the gospel is Christ and him crucified. Everything else is truly powerless. The Savior's death and resurrection is the focus of the gospel. That is where the power of God is. And God still delights to use that message that seems so foolish and weak and despised in the eyes of the world. The message of Christ crucified. The power and the wisdom of God. He is our life and our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is everything that we need for eternal life and for godliness. Trust in him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your your word for your providence. We thank you that you're in control of all our times and circumstances, just as you were for your people uh, of old, even in those terrible circumstances in Egypt. Help us, Lord, to, to trust in you, to live by faith in you in every circumstance, whatever uh, our lives um, are facing. Uh, in times of ease, in times of trial, in times of great danger, Lord, keep our eyes lifted up and fixed upon you and your Son. Teach us to trust in you and to rest in your love and in your great goodness that we see in Christ and in all that he did for us at the cross. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.